the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey everyone, welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. A little bit of house cleaning. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, anywhere you get your podcasts. The hashtag is trending, though. Can I say, if I just speak the word trending, does yep, that make it so? It does. Hashtag The Common Good is trending, <laughs> probably for reasons other than our show, to be honest. <laughs> That's a pretty common... Actually, we've, we haven't asked for this in a while. If you hear somebody use the phrase, the common good, you know, in news or media, uh, send it our way. We would love to incorporate that and pretend they're talking about us. Doesn't that sound like fun, Brian? Yes. Maybe they are, like back when we had the president do it. <laughs> you think that was a, a nod to our show? I think so. Here at AM 1160, I'm a words of affirmation guy, so that was very affirming. Okay, so when you are a words of affirmation guy, does it mean that you are more inclined to believe <clears throat> words are about you? No, 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 no. Really? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I was fully aware that the president wasn't talking about us. I mean, I know about that, but, I'm, but I mean, like, in general, though, do you find that, like, yeah, are you more inclined to believe a positive thing is about you or a negative thing is about you? Uh, I am more inclined to believe positive things about me. Really? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that's not typically the case for words of affirmation people, to be is honest. Right? I think so. It's a little, it's like words of affirmation. It's like a recipe, right? Words of affirmation, a little bit of narcissism, <laughs> a little bit of ego, and there we go. See, but I'm a words of affirmation guy, though, and... Like we've said before, I could hear, you know, a hundred kind words and like one negative one could like really bum out my That's afternoon. That's actually true for me too. Really? Now I don't know. <laughs> now I'm not sure. I didn't mean to make you uh, second guess the very nature and essence of your being. Yeah. I, I generally take criticism way too personally and way too long. <laughs> really? really? With me. So maybe that's true. Yeah. I tend to move on from it pretty quick, but it's sort of in the moment. That's not what we're here to let's, talk about. Let's practice that. About I criticize you. No. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. If even if you were to like make up a fake compliment right now, yeah. it would still feel good okay. like, because I'm such a words of affirmation guy. Even though I I knew you're like putting me on, that's awesome. It still would like. Is it awesome though? It is. You could like lie to my face. I'm like, hey, I'll still take it. That's good. I could have a robot in the house that just says, "Ian, you're doing a great job." And I'm like, oh. Before, thanks, before, thanks, before we get started, you smell good today. <laughs> <laughs> you decide if that was a true compliment or not. <laughs> See, I would. <laughs> <laughs> See what you're doing there. I wouldn't take that as a compliment because it's not anything that I did to aspire a to. <laughs> I want it's that not. on my epitaph. So how's that for a transition? We're going to talk about a guy who died. It's not um, something I aspire to. <laughs> it's to smell good, right? Okay. So here's the uh, here's the headline: Utah man dies on Everest after reaching goal of climbing each continent's tallest mountain. Family says. Yeah. So it's a it's a pretty. Um, it's a strange story. We told it to some people, and they're like, oh, that's really sad. And I kind of disagreed, actually. I was like, I don't know, maybe it's not actually sad. But before we dive into some of the mechanics of it, uh, I want you to hear from first uh, his daughter and then his son. So let's hear from the daughter first. I think there's just so much peace that comes from knowing that 
he didn't suffer that it was the best way to go okay so that was that was his daughter and then uh this is what his son had to say just the last message that he sent to me personally he said i feel so blessed to be on the mountain that i read about for the last 40 years Okay, so so you can see why I'm a little conflicted about yeah. this not being just a. I mean, okay, first it obviously is sad, uh, tragic. I mean, mm-hmm. children lost their father, or wife lost her husband, um, but there is something, and we've touched on this over the, the last few months though about you know, like doing what you love, <laughs> and we've even shared the story of the guy who's the guy that that died mid sermon or he just finished his sermon uh, the old president at Wheaton oh, way right, back in the day right uh, Edmund uh, President Edmund yeah who had literally been talking about it and yeah, then walked off heaven. the stage yep, and yep, died yep. right so so I'm curious like how this story hits you and uh, is this just a cut and dry sad story or is there, is there some silver lining there I don't think it's sad at all and like you said uh, at first blush you're like okay he died at the age of 55 the guy's name is Don Cash from Utah he's a passionate climber and he left his job to do something called the Seven Summits Club uh, and so what this means, he's he had a goal of climbing the tallest mountain on each continent. Hmm. And the last one was Mount Everest. Hmm. <clears throat> and he summited Mount Everest, and it was like his dream. Yeah, right. And then he uh, he had a heart attack on the way down and was not able to be saved. And so wow. uh, that's kind of the background to this story. And I do think there is there is some some sadness to it. Like you, like you said, he passed or just that like, oh, the timing is really crazy. But there's something almost romantic about the fact that this guy was doing the thing he set out to do. Hmm. And as he completed it, uh, like he was at the most euphoric moment of probably outside of, you know, his wife and kids. He's at the biggest moment of his life, completes it and then and then pass away. I don't know. Uh, I don't mean to be too Pollyanna or romantic about this, but there's something to be said about this guy set his goal. Like, I'm going to do this. You don't know how much time you have left. Like he could have said, I'm not going to quit my job. I'm going to wait till I can retire or whatever else. But instead he said, I'm going to do this. It was a crazy goal. I'm sure everyone was like, what are you doing? And his family support him. He does the last one and then he passed away. I don't know. There's something, there's something kind of Hollywoodish about it that I, that I do find like, it's a sad story in some level, but it's not altogether sad. Like there's, there's, it's more than a silver lining. There's something like. You know, chase your dreams. Like, yeah, right. you know, your time could be short, but also, like, this guy did what he dreamt of doing. Is there any part of you that sees the chasing of these dreams as selfish? Because he, so he was fifty-five. Yep, that's that's young. Uh, I mean, he. So the the wife, the last text that she got, the last message she got was, "Thank you for supporting me in my dreams." Which we could do a whole other segment on that. Like, how how far are we willing to? Support our spouses in the dreams that they have, you know, like, is there a give and take there? But I, there is still a big part of me that's heartbroken that a, you know, a 55 year old with wife and kids is no longer alive. But you use the word Hollywood ish, right? That is, mm-hmm. that is, I have a love hate relationship even with that. Like, on one hand, you're like, oh, epic. Yes. How epic to, to die on the mountain that you've dreamt of climbing for so long. Uh, but also how tragic, you know, and you heard mm-hmm. it in the daughter's voice. And so maybe maybe it's not an easy answer, like we say on the show a lot. Maybe it is sort of a both and. But I'd love to know, no. in light of this story, uh, what would you encourage people listening right now to take from it? Mm. I think one of the takeaways for me here is, and we talk about this often, is it's another reminder uh, that we're not... Um, we are not guaranteed another day. Yeah, right. right? There's no telling. He might have had this heart attack sitting at his office cubicle, right? That's like, a good point. It could be because he climbed Everest or all these other ones, or it could have just been when it happened. And um, 
that, that your time is not guaranteed. And I get what you're saying. I, you know, reading some of the quotes, it seems like his family was supportive, but they might've just been supportive because that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. Right. Uh, but that's my takeaway. Like, you know, I, this would never be my dream, but there are things that I'm probably would love to do in my life uh, that you just don't know what time you have. And so I think that's one takeaway for me. And that's very biblical, right? Like life is but a mist and you don't know what's coming. Right. Um, and so I, you know, I think that's, a, that is a takeaway from the story. Yeah. The, the Jim Carrey quote that I'm reminded of right now, he said something like, uh, you, you can fail at what you don't want, so you might as well take a chance on doing what you love. Mm. He's talking about his uh, his old man who stayed in a job he hated um, because you know for rational reasons. You know, I have a family and whatnot, and then he ended up getting laid off of this safe job that he thought was a sure thing. And he said that was sort of a light bulb moment for me. He's like, oh man, you you can get laid off of a job you hate. You might as well go for the thing you love, yeah. right? Like that yeah. is, and again, you know, this is just in nine or ten minutes that you know we can't unpack all the nuance here, but I think that is worth remembering because I think a lot of us probably have blinked and 10 years passed us by. 100%. And I thought about starting that Etsy store, taking on this hobby, or like learning to play piano, or giving back to my community, or getting to know my neighbors, and you blink, and you're like, oh, we've been here a decade. Yes. Like, I think that, for me, is the big takeaway that, you know, like, don't put off the work of doing what you really believe God has laid in your heart to do, yes. and obviously, within reason, you know, and that... That's where we always talk about, like, bringing that to the community, people around you. Like, hey, am I off my rocker? Is this an insane thing to do? Or is this, like, a, is this a helpful thing to do? Either way, uh, I'm kind of inspired by this guy's story, and I'm inspired to stop putting off the stuff in my life that I feel like God is calling me to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, com- coming up next, uh, Matt Chandler warns that church is no longer about discipleship, but more about being entertained. We're going to talk about that next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. Do we have podcasts, Brian? We do. Everywhere you can get your podcast. Literally. Everywhere. Think of a podcast platform. It's there. We got it. We got you. Also, somehow, magically, liking, subscribing, reviewing, that all helps us, or so I'm told. I've I've yet to actually see how that's empirically true, but I believe the, uh, the powers that be. And uh, if you've been with us for any length of time, uh, you know that Brian and I are both pastors, and we, we do really love talking about our job as pastors in our churches, but it also informs the way that we see stuff in the media and culture, and uh, sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes maybe it you know it clouds our ability to see things because our our scope or our environment, but uh, I know that one of the things that I really appreciate about um, being in a church community is the collective accountability yes. and people – I mean, there's just a lot – that I love about the church. And when, when people get that, um, there could be something really profound about realizing that like, Oh, it's not just this prayer that I pray. So I go to heaven when I die, like this doing life together thing can be really, really, uh, significant, but also kind of messy can be pretty inefficient. And, um, I don't know. Are you a, are you a Matt Chandler fan? I am especially, I don't listen to a ton of sermons these days on when I listen to podcasts and stuff, but uh, there was a day I was listening to Matt Chandler sermons. Like I was caught up. I was listening to him every week. <laughs> okay. I think he, I, I resonate with him. I think he's a, a, a great preacher, but B, I just think I have a lot of respect for him. At, obviously never having met him. I, I have a lot of respect for him through his writings and his sermons. So yeah, big Matt Chandler. So you're fan. already team Matt Chandler. Anyway. Okay. All right. So, so he gave a sermon recently, uh, talking a little bit about this dichotomy between, um, discipleship. And entertainment. Yep. And uh, I wanted to share with you a quick clip because I think the way he says it is so compelling and so interesting. And I want to kind of get some of your reactions. So let's let's listen to that now. 
See, an arena of culture expects everything to be put together when we arrive. This is family. This is this is not a showing up an event with a swag bag underneath our chair and everything done for us. This is us serving one another that shows that our personal preferences are secondary to the manifold wisdom of God being made visible among us. Our personal preferences are secondary mm-hmm. is Again, so much easier said than done, but I remember a preacher years ago equating it to the difference between, like when you're growing up, having a meal at home versus like having it at a restaurant. At a yeah. restaurant, you know, everything is set for you, and if something's wrong with the burger, you send it back. But imagine, mm. like, trying that with your mom when you were 10. Like, <laughs> uh, excuse me, mother, I said medium rare. And like, like, you would never, in a family, that's just not how it's, it's not how it's done. And I think his family metaphor, and you and I both use family language a lot, when it comes to our churches, what I want to get from you is one, do you think he's right? Like, have we, have we shifted towards entertainment culture, arena mm-hmm. culture? And two, how, if so, how, how do we get better? How do, how do we combat some of that proclivity? Yep. I do think, I don't know if we're becoming more an arena culture thing. I think this has always been a problem for the church, especially in the last 20 to 30 years, but it's certainly not getting less. Hmm. It's certainly not necessarily getting better, even though we see arena. I'm using air quotes. If you could see it, <laughs> we see arena churches around us having a lot of big problems. And um, so I think he's right. Matt Chandler's church is fascinating because uh, it went from hundreds into thousands and tens of thousands. And they had did everything the churches do, right? They did campuses and all this. And he has begun spinning his campuses off into their own churches, into right. autonomous churches, right. really putting his money where his mouth is and says, I just want, and he's speaking less at conferences and doing this and that. Uh, so he's kind of putting his money where his mouth is. But, you know, I think there are two things. One, we need to talk about this with people. What are the expectations of church? Like that church is family. You and I talk about this all the time. That church is is a family you belong to. It's not a place that you go to. And so understanding that it's going to be messy and there's going to be expectation and you're not always going to be happy with everything. No family gets along perfectly all the time. But I would also say, man, that, that I think maybe even the bigger burden for this falls on the leadership of churches. I think people, uh, People want their preferences given to them and people um, tend towards, you know, uh, being a more consumeristic because we cater to that. He says this isn't a swag bag, but some churches, you know, we've got those under the seat or we, we cater to everybody what you want. And we even use that language like, uh, <laughs> you know, we're, we're we're, you know, trying to give you what you want. And so. I think what's probably more powerful for Chandler here is to be the one saying it from the front and his church is hearing this and now they have setting the foundation to begin living this out. The hard part becomes for churches to say this and then live by it, right? To tell people, no, we're not about your preferences and I'm sorry you feel that way. We're a family, but you know, until we dive into this and lean into it and start living that way, then people are going to come hoping their preferences are right. And what's the the, music and what's the tricky part of that though, is that sometimes in families, preferences are acknowledged and they are accommodated, right? So it isn't just, oh, all of your preferences are wrong and evil and church is about the gospel. Who cares about your preferences? I don't, yep. I don't think it's an either or. I, I want to read a quote from this message. I think it says it well. He says, you and I are so overstimulated. You and I are so overwhelmed with fast-paced, energized entertainment that we've developed a real idealized sense of what life, uh, of what life is with a really low pain tolerance. The church herself no longer is about 
discipleship no longer is about being shaped, no longer is about being formed. It's about being entertained in the gathering. Yes. And I don't, I don't even think that's a big church, small church thing, to be honest. I, I think, I think, I think churches of every shape and size, every culture, every denomination feels the temptation to simply entertain, right? And, and again, entertainment is not evil. Not at all. But I don't think it's the main, I don't think it needs to be or should be the main purpose of the ecclesia, the, the and, gathered people. And uh, to go to what you said, I think it's sometimes more uh, tempting for the small church. Why? Why do you think that is? Because you so desperately want to grow, right? And mm. so what are the easiest ways to grow? And also you will more likely cater to people's, um, uh, to their preferences because you don't want them to leave. Right? Okay. Like, all right. Uh, you know, I wonder a church your size that often probably people will lob these kind of things against like, oh, you know, you're the people that have never been to your church are going, you're this just by looking at the size of your church. There's a certain number of people that if they left, you guys wouldn't even notice. Not I what I'm not saying is you don't care. Right. But I'm saying just by the sheer numbers of it, you might not notice where a smaller church would. And so it becomes more about individual preferences. And that's where it becomes even harder, but more important to say no. This is what we're going to be about. There are places where we will listen to preferences, but not mm. on everything because we can't just chase everybody's preferences. Right. That's true. It's the chasing that I find probably the most problematic, sometimes even with the best of intentions. Like if we really desire for someone to meet and encounter Jesus, maybe sometimes the mindset is like, if I have to package it in like a really glamorous, glitzy way in order to intrigue you enough, I'm, you know, I'm willing to do that. You know, like we have friends that have a church in Vegas and like, we're competing with Vegas. Yes. So we, there's like people hanging from the ceilings and we have huge props and huge set pieces because what we're competing with in the culture, uh, kind of warrants that. And I, you know, I think that there's a real, there's a real strong perspective there, but what, what Chandler says in this talk, and I, I really do encourage you go, I mean, listen to the 37 minutes. Right. It's, it's solid. He's, he's talking about what we're doing here right now is not discipleship, which I totally get. And you and I, we love preaching. I love, yeah. I love what I get to do on Sunday. Uh, he's like, but this is breathing in. This is nourishment to then go live on mission. Yes. He says each of us, Ephesians three, Ephesians four, we've been equipped by the Holy spirit to do the work of ministry. Sunday is the push, not the point. And if we really truly believe that, then it, it will mean addressing some of the stuff that he's talking about. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, well, let's, let's poke at some of our need to be entertained or as leaders to just give people what we know they want, what will keep them coming back. Or, or do we really, are we actually calling them to like life on ministry, like yes. that kind of discipleship and people out there, if you're just, you know, Joe or Jane church attender, like dive into your church. Like it's a family, get into the mess, be a part of it and don't let your preferences and what you want be what dictates it. But be like, you know what? I'm in this. I never, I don't look at my family and be like, well, I'm in it for the good times, but the bad times I'm going to check out. Don't be those people. And, uh, and I think you're going to get a much more vibrant, uh, church experience because it's what the church is meant to be. Yeah. So I, this is kind of how he, uh, he sets it all up. He says, a lot of you think that the village church has 50 ministers, right? That we're the ones that are the ministers. He's like, no, the village church has 6,000 ministers. That's, that's the whole point that we then yes. live on mission, right? The, the analogy that I've heard people use is that the, the church is, is a battleship, not a cruise liner. It's mm. not for us to just sort of come and lounge and be entertained, but to prepare to then head back out into a world so desperately in need of hope and healing. And we do that together, which I think yeah. is such an important shift. And it, it is encouraging to see, to see that coming from somebody like Chandler who does have such 
such a reach. And man, my prayer is that more and more churches, particularly in the West, let's be honest, yep. uh, wake up to this reality. Cause I think, I think the world really, really needs it, man. Yeah. Well, you've been listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com or wherever it is that you get your podcast. And one of the things I love about the show is we get to interview all sorts of interesting people all over the place. Some have written books, some are leading movements. And we have on the phone right now, Dr. Kevin Lehman, the author of The Intimate Connection. Sir, welcome to the show. Hey, pleasure to be with you guys. Thanks so much. I'm wondering if you could just briefly tell our audience who you are uh, what you do and what you've done in your own words. Well, I'm an old guy. I'm an old <laughs> guy. Uh, young people don't even know who Phil Donahue was. Uh, I've done Oprah, Regis, done every show known to mankind, I think. I've been married uh, to the same lucky woman for over 50 years in a row. Awesome. In a uh, row. <laughs> Consecutively. I, I met her... I want anybody to top this one. I met her when I was a janitor in the men's room of Tucson Medical Center. And she was the one that, that God used to turn my whole life around. But I've written lots of books, got five kids, four grandchildren. Uh, I still go out and do lots of speaking all over the world. And uh, I enjoy radio, TV, done it for years. So I'm just a regular guy. But this is a this is a regular book. This is a book, The Intimate Connection, is the reason I guess you guys are visiting with me today. It is a book, quite frankly, that scratches where men itch and where women itch, and it resonates, and I think uh, it's a fun topic. Uh, give us a little bit more. Like uh, Ian and I are both married, and I've been married going on 20 years, which is just unbelievable to me, and Ian, much less than that. Uh, and uh, why would you say this connection kind of starts to, it doesn't so much as break down, but it just kind of becomes really normal over the years. Uh, why does that happen? And, and what would be some words of advice to couples uh, who feel like that connection is getting a little stale? <laughs> well, I'm going to blame this one on God. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to end the interview there. You know, now, I think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, he's the one that came up with the two shall become one. Mm. Let me tell you something straight out. You guys seem like normal guys. Women are weird. <laughs> uh, I mean, we're weird, I, too. Let's be fair. But no, no, we're strange. Oh, <laughs> oh that's <laughs> awesome. You know, you know, uh, Brian and Ian, you, you don't look at each other and say, I'm going potty. Anyone want to come along? <laughs> you don't know that. Oh, <laughs> I... I Seriously, I think God created us so differently mm. that he's saying, you know, you really got to work hard because I've created them so differently. Women use three and a half times the number of words that we do in a given day. Mm. Okay? And what women need to understand is that uh, we want you to think, ladies, about what you're going to say to us. And now divide it by 10. <laughs> Give us the USA Today version, and we'll listen. And ladies, I don't want to be offensive to you, but I'm going to tell you as straight out as I can. I'm an honest guy. We men hate your question. <laughs> Honey, if you're listening, that's not like true. Them. I love your questions. <laughs> you don't like those boys. He 
cover in his you-know-what. <laughs> yes, uh, he is. <laughs> looking for a good dinner tonight. But, you know, really, men and kids have similarities. Kids don't like our questions. How was your day at school today, honey? Fine. What did you do in school today? Nothing. And then what do they do? They go to their bedroom, lock their door, get their cell phone out, text their buddies like a woodpecker that's got a bad case of ADHD, <laughs> and they suck you out of their life. And us men, ladies, if you want us to talk to you, we know one of your needs is communication. Just say to your husband, Ian, um, I'd love to have your uh, thoughts, your opinion about so-and-so. The Brian's and the Ian's of the world will talk your ear off, ladies, if you ask for our opinion. We don't like the questions. Kids don't like the questions. <laughs> so, so this book, An Intimate Connection, not only helps you to move toward that oneness, which is obviously the utopian place you want to be, yeah, but it, it gives you something to really sink your teeth into. I remember my bride coming down the aisle. She's five foot nine inch, beautiful woman. And I remember thinking, man, I am the luckiest dude on the earth to be mm. married to this woman coming down the aisle. And I didn't realize it, but underneath her little bouquet of flowers was a rule book. And all of us bring rule books in the marriage. Mm. And it's based upon the experiences we had with, guess who? Mom, dad siblings. I mean, I'm the guy that wrote the birth order book I yeah. know something about this topic. Trust me. And if, if gentlemen, your bride had a lousy relationship with her dad, a hurtful relationship with her dad, not only is she going to struggle with her relationship with almighty God, guess who's going to pay for that lousy relationship with that key man in our life? Mm. You are. So this is, like I said, I've written lots of books and New York times bestsellers, et cetera. But this book, I think, uh, more than ever, is needed. And my suggestion is you buy two of them and use different color highlighter and get brave enough to exchange those books with your bride. Mm. And really work toward this oneness. It's difficult to get there. Yeah. So I'm curious how you navigate, because obviously... Um like in some ways, when you talk about male and female relationships, you know, you need to paint with broad brushes, but we also know that relationships have different dynamics. Uh, it's not always the man is always this way and the woman is always that way. And I think, uh, is that tricky when, when writing a book, which is a, a limited medium where it's not really, you know, a dialogue like a radio show or a conversation uh, when learning? Because even thinking about, you know, woundedness from your dad, like I know a lot of men who've been really wounded by their moms or wounded by their oh, yeah. dads, and they're, they're bringing that baggage into the relationship as well. And, and do you find that writing a book like that is, is hard to thread that needle to kind of be considered of you know, all sides of the spectrum? No, I just try to tell people the truth, and that is about 20%. And you're right. You know, the, the, the young boy who was damaged by his mom, that, that bride's going to pay for that. But what you have to understand is... About 20% of marriages, uh, you're going to find the female, the wife, is the aggressor sexually. In about 80% of marriages, you're going to see the male is the aggressor. But again, I go back to some of the simple things. Uh, now, who's been married the longest? I think it's uh, Brian, right? Yes. Uh, it's close, but yeah. <laughs> Not close. <laughs> 
Yes. Well, no, wait. Who's been married the longest? Brian has. Brian. Yep. Okay. All right, Brian. Uh, you've had uh, you're out for dinner, and uh, you take her to a nice four forker or a five forker, uh, not a one forker. Okay. <laughs> I would never do that. <laughs> and, and, Did that and yesterday? A, and the waiter comes over and says, uh, "Would you uh, would you like to have dessert?" Uh-huh. Uh, and you turn to your bride and say, honey, what do you think? And she says, well, no, I, I don't think so. I say, okay, sir, we'll just have our bill, thank you, and you're leaving. And 10 minutes later, she turns to you and she says, uh, uh, Brian, uh, do you want to stop for ice cream? Yeah. Now, here's question. Is she asking a question, Brian? <laughs> no, she's not asking a question. She's saying, I want your mocha almond fudge now. <laughs> I have- women. I have fallen into this trap before. <laughs> oh, we all have. I'm telling you, I've, I've been married forever. And I, I do things from behind my eyes. And what I've learned as a husband is I have to be able to live with this woman from behind her eyes. Mm. And she sees life completely different. So isn't it just like God to give us different needs? Need, number one, for a woman, affection. Number two, communication. Number three, commitment to the family. And you can toss those around in any order. I'm not going to fight with you, but those are basically the top three. For men, it's needed, wanted, uh, and uh, and respect. And you have to, as a man, understand just who this woman is. Everybody finish this sentence for me. You're in good hands with Allstate. I've <laughs> around since I was a little kid, and I'm yeah. near death. Okay. Mm-hmm. But that's how a woman needs to feel for her to really love that helpmate of hers the way she needs to. So uh, it, this is tricky business. No, yeah. I, I'm very aware that you can paint all men this way and all men that way. But right. the reality is, based on research, women use three and a half times in other words that we do. And we do have distinctly different needs than women. Right. Well, you've been listening to Dr. Kevin Lehman, author of The Intimate Connection. You can learn more at www.drlehman.com. Sir, thank you so much for joining us on thank the show you. today. This is great. Hey, my pleasure. I wish you both well, figuring those women out in your life. Thanks thank so much. You. Appreciate it. <laughs> this has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name, as you may have heard, Ian Michael Simpkins, along with Brian Jimmy Fromm. <laughs> nice. You we're, like that? We're going to keep going with that, aren't we? We're going to keep going. I, I tend to go with jokes just a bit longer than you're supposed to. Sometimes more than a bit, I guess. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com. And uh, before we dive into this next story, I want to tell you about Food for the Poor, because we've been partnering with them, I guess, for a long time now. But in particular, the last two weeks, hearing some like on-the-ground stories that have been incredibly challenging. If you're listening, I want to encourage you to go to 1160hope.com, click the uh, Saving Starving Families button, and for just $80, uh, you can give a kid food for a year, water for life. And my guess is some of you can do way more than $80. If that's you, like I cannot encourage you enough, go to their website, read the stories, watch the videos. It, it is so compelling and so heartbreaking what's happening in Haiti, mm-hmm. like right now, right under our noses. And uh, so we would love for you uh, to partner with us to make a serious, serious change to literally save lives yeah. uh, for people that really, really and need some it. Some people, some of you've got a lot of money. You don't totally. need to stop at one family. You could change a whole community. Absolutely. Uh, businesses out there that have earmarked money to That's be right. given to charity. This is a great spot to do it. So 
as Ian say, go to 1160hope.com, and there you'll see the banner. And, uh, yeah, blow us away. We okay. look forward to the results. We would love that, man. All right, so here's the headline. Texas school triples recess time and sees immediate positive result in kids. Yeah, this is going to be, I'm going to sound like the old guy because this is, <laughs> I've got kids, uh, one in high school and two in elementary school, and uh, the amount of activeness through mm. recess or PE, uh, the trend nationwide has been to remove it, it mm. because you have so much uh, work to do, test to take, you know, learn, learn, learn. Uh, and that just feels counterproductive or counterintuitive. Like we all know that kids aren't really wired to just sit. And um, my wife, uh, before we had kids, was an elementary school PE teacher. And so she used to always bang this drum about the need for kids to have PE every day and to be running, you know, to get the blood moving. Uh, And so this Texas school, Eagle Mountain Elementary School in Fort Worth, Texas, they began uh, adding. And so what they did was they have four 15 minute recess breaks. So Hmm. instead of like one long one, they've got four 15 minute recess breaks. Two in the morning, two in the afternoon for the kids just to go and play outside. They started it in kindergarten and first grade students, but now they've been moving it up. And it says here that the teachers were worried about this because they thought they were they were going to lose important class time, important learning time. Right. Uh, but it says now that the experiment has been going on for about five months, teachers say that the kids are actually learning more because they're better able to focus in class and pay attention without fidgeting. Uh, this one first grade teacher said there was part of me that was very nervous about it. I was trying to wrap my head around my class going outside four times a day and still being able to teach those children all the things they needed to learn. But now she says that not only are the students paying better attention in class, they're following directions better, hmm. attempting to learn more independently and solve problems on their own, and they're having fewer disciplinary issues. And so they're seeing every they're seeing behavior change. They're seeing less fidgetiness from the kids. And we all get this. We always are like, well, no, these kids are just like this now. But but what they're finding, the research says, if you get their blood moving, you get them outside, short bursts, uh, that maybe the best idea for kindergartners and first graders is not to sit them behind a desk all day and try right. to teach them, but to instead have them interacting outside and doing things. And I'm thankful for my kids' school, their elementary school. They seem to really get this, and they keep the kids moving. But But the trend of schools has been away from this. And now to actually see research behind it that says, hey, do you actually want your kids to learn better? Right. Get them outside. That's so interesting. Moving around and do this stuff. And uh, yeah, it's just fascinating. You're going to see it if you put your kids in the public schools. Uh, you're going to see there's this trend towards test taking and learning right. and sitting, and it's just not good for kids. Yeah, my wife's a teacher, too, and so she's she's been banging this drum for a while as well. And In fact, Dr. Debbie Ray of uh, Texas Christian University has been working closely with some of these schools, had this to say. To be able to see this in motion, yeah, I'm just, I'm in awe. It was just very obvious to me that it's the recess and the character development pieces together that are really the keys. See, what I find so interesting about that is often recess and then character development. We, we did a segment on this months ago on the soft skills, right? How so often they get sort of diminished as like, yeah. ah, if we have time to work on the soft skills, well, we got to really hammer home these big three or four, which we're not diminishing those either. But how interesting, though, that they're finding more and more research that the activity, and we won't dive into like the brain science necessarily right now, but literally affects our physiology, our neuroplasticity, that by having this activity, it's not just... I think as adults, we tend to think, oh, I'm going to go for a walk to uh, wake myself up a little bit or to, you know, shake off this grogginess, which is part of it. But they're finding more and more like, no, no, their brains are actually more receptive to learning. The thing that you're wanting them to do 
And by preventing them from having physical activity uh, with some sort of strategic intervals is actually hindering their ability to yeah. learn, which I find so fascinating that so often the thing that we're fighting against would actually make the thing that we're fighting for a whole lot more fruitful. Fascinating. And parents are saying they've seen a difference in their kids at home. Uh, they're being more independent and creative. And they also, uh, here's one, it says their parents are saying it's helped their kids socially. Well, that makes sense. Where do kids make friends with kids? Is it sitting side by side, listening to your teacher teach math? Or is it out on the playground going down slides and playing mm-hmm. and playing? Obviously, they need to learn. Like, this can't be like, all right, well, then just keep them outside all day. Well, no, there's obviously a happy medium here. But these they're finding these short recess breaks uh, is not it's not loss. It is actually adding, like you said, to the learning environment. And right. ev- it's just working. And so the the person you just heard, Debbie Ray, is calling on schools to call what they call a quote unquote reboot like this. It, that's essentially what you're doing. You're rebooting these kids during the course of the day. And I just think it's important for schools and parents to think through this because, you mm-hmm. know, you're, you're going to be there soon. But even when my kids were in, uh, in kindergarten, it was half day kindergarten. That rarely exists around us anymore. Now mm-hmm. the kindergartens are going full day. And so. How are you going to keep these kids engaged? How are you going to keep them letting them be kids? And parents, this is also true for home. Like if you let your kids yeah. just sit inside and play video games all day, hurting your kid. Hmm. Uh, if you're just you know, like we always joke how the last generation, it was like your parents would just kick you out and close the door and be like, <laughs> right. come back when it's dark out. You know, well, obviously we live in a different day and age now. We live in a different culture, but your kids need to be outside. They need to be playing. It helps them socially. It helps them. Uh, physiologically, it helps them in all sorts of ways that playing in video games inside is not going to do. Is that why you think the reboot is so necessary? Is it because kids are actually less active in general in their regular normal life? I just think at that age, the kids are just wired for that, right? Like, think about how you were when you were a little kid, right? I'd you rather just, not. <laughs> yeah. You needed to be outside. You needed to be exploring. You needed to be playing. You Kindergartners aren't wired to sit behind desks for eight hours a day mm. or six hours a day. And so, yeah, we're wired for that. But also, you're right. I am, uh, you know, I don't want to be the old guy here, but I do get worried with a lot of my kids' friends hmm. and how much time they spend playing video games. Screens in particular, right? Screens That's, at yeah. all. But yeah. especially, you know, to paint with a broad brush, especially uh, young boys and video games, it's, yeah. an, it's a problem. Hmm. I've talked to parents who are like, yeah, you know, if, if I let my kid, he will never stop playing video games. Oh, really? And, you know, at a young age, sometimes it's easier to put him in front of the screen that becomes a babysitter. <laughs> totally. And so, totally. And so these are problems. And so, you know, get your kid outside, get him playing, get him knowing the neighbors, get him playing. And, yeah. and the schools need to do this as well. And so if you're out there and you're a parent of a little kid, I would encourage you to have these conversations. One thing I've always, I've always appreciated about my wife is like, she would engage with the administration at the school, mm. just not be one of those annoying parents. who's like, man, did you do that? But like, just get, she'd bring them coffee, introduce herself and begin to get into the school and have a conversation. And I'd encourage you to do that and have these conversations with your administrators, big. Hey, I, I saw this research. I'm wondering what you think about it. Like, yeah, right. Everybody wants what's best for the kids, mm-hmm. but there is this this current of test taking and meeting standards that that I think schools are going away from this. And so, it, it is important research, I think, for us as parents uh, and for schools. Okay, so I might be reaching with this a little bit, which <laughs> that's a, a great setup. Huh? Yeah, uh, it's what we do. Here. Is there is there any? Correlation in your mind to how we sometimes look at church, right? Like I sit and learn things, maybe not behind a desk, but I'm a, I'm a passive recipient of some kind of spiritual knowledge and I'll see you again next Sunday. Or I have a small group where I also am just sort of like 
talking in that, which I love all yep. of that stuff. I love yep. Sunday mornings. Is is there maybe a correlation to sometimes the best thing to do for your like spiritual health is to go out and and play or to do the things to put some physicality behind and not even just, not even just an actual walk. I'm saying like even more metaphorically, like sometimes we don't serve or don't, uh, give back because I'm like, I don't feel like I'm spiritually mature yet. Like what if those are the ways that we actually grow spiritually is by thinking outside the box and doing some stuff. I think that's the key phrase thinking outside the box because this is, there's something to this and I don't know what the correlation is for adults, but we often will sit behind our computers for eight hours a day and then go home, you know, and, there is we 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 don't just automatically change from how we were with kids. It might be more pronounced as kids, but right. yeah, there's probably stuff worth thinking about this and how we situate our Sunday morning gatherings, but just how we do our days in general. Like yep. honestly, and uh, you know, really fast. Like oftentimes when it's nice outside, which amazingly it might be happening soon, <laughs> I will. I work better if I sermon prep and then go for a walk. Yeah, totally. and then come back. Like it, there is something to this that we need to take seriously. Yeah, totally agree. Coming up next, here's the headline. Do you want some leadership advice? Lead like a woman. That's what's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Well, hi there, everybody. My, my name is Farmer Bob, joined by <laughs> Brian Fromm here on this Friday. I don't know what goes through your head sometimes. Oh, believe me, you don't You don't even know the half of it. It's not a safe place, man. You uh, can find us, if you like, even after that introduction, on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com, plus wherever it is that you get podcasts. And uh, Brian and I mentioned this probably too much at this point, that we are also both pastors. That is sort of our... Uh, that's our day job, yep. as, it, as they say. As they say, do people say day job still? I don't know who still? they are. I yeah. don't know who they which are. Which it but. isn't just a day job, actually, which is kind of ironic to call it that. Either way, um, there are a couple of pastors that we follow, and uh, some are probably more guilty pleasures than others. But Brian Fromm, i got to give you credit. Uh, you turned me on to this guy, Scott Sauls, yes. who uh, is probably one of the best Twitter follows I've had in the last three months, yep. to be honest. Uh, that and Keith Conrad, but there's um, <laughs> there's an article that he shared that's uh, he's talking about grace and and sometimes in the church world, like talks and blogs and tweets about grace can feel like a little tired. You're like, okay, one more pastor writing about grace, but yep. the the title is, can we really stomach? God's grace. And I thought that was an interesting angle to take uh, with a topic that we end up talking a lot about. And so uh, I'd love for you just kind of set us up. What's what's he really saying in this blog here? Yeah, I would encourage you, like you said, follow Scott Sauls on Twitter, but also this is straight out of his blog. And uh, he, he is a pretty prolific writer. Uh, and he, he starts by talking basically about <clears throat> the scandal of God's grace and that oftentimes we can't we get so bothered by it in other people that we can't really realize the depth of our own need. And so he references the famous story with Corey Tenboom uh, as she was approached after giving a talk on God's forgiveness. And she was approached by a man she recognized immediately because he had served as a Nazi guard in the prison camp hmm. where her and her sister were held during the Holocaust. Whoa. And, and like he stuck out his hand and it was like she had this moment of like, what do I do? Wow. You and I, a uh, really powerful story. One of the few, one of the stories that has stuck with me 
uh, that we've done in the past is this story of the guy who killed his wife and daughters yep. uh, out in Colorado and then said in prison he came to find Jesus. And I remember you and I having that discussion, like, does that bother you? And I remember <laughs> basically owning the fact, like, I don't really want him to come to faith. Like, that yeah, feels right. unfair. Hmm. And that's kind of what's at the heart of this, right? He says the grace of God reached Jeffrey Dahmer, a sociopath and serial killer who professed faith as he awaited execution. Saul of Tarsus, King David, he goes over and over and over again. And he says this at the end. He says, I have to admit that grace really bothers me sometimes. Like, What a, what a great line that I think if we yeah. think about it, we're like, I'm not supposed to say that, but right, I believe right, it. Right. And then he goes, does it bother you? Do we really want it? Can we handle it? Can we bear it? Can we stomach it? Hmm. And yet without it. Where would we be? Yeah, no and so kidding. The, the whole blog is basically uh, introducing the scandal of God's grace. Uh, and I think he does a great job at saying it's scandalous. We know it's scandalous because it bothers us. Grace shown to other people who we don't think deserve it. But that the longer we linger on it and understand it, the more scandalous it should be that we are offered grace by almighty and holy God, you know, in, in our sinfulness. Uh, and so I, I just really resonate with this because sometimes when you've been a Christian for a long time, you lose sight of your own need of God's grace in your life. You know what I find interesting, though, about this is that sometimes like because he lists a, a couple of people from history who did these awful things. Yep. And he talks about God's grace reached them. Uh, I'm almost that's almost easier for me to get my head around than the coworker that stomps on my last nerve. Mm. Like you can list like people that did these awful, terrible things. You're like, yes, of course, God's grace is scandal. That's a word I've used, scandalous grace. Yep. Even even the worst sinner and the criminal and the axe murderer. And then it's like the person that just stomps on your last nerve. Yeah. You, there is a there is a, a, a stinginess of grace, right? They're like, mm. I'm, I'm grateful for what it's done in my life, but to extend it here or to even be okay with somebody else extending it. Even that's how dark it goes for me sometimes. It's not yeah. even me being a better person, being <laughs> like taking the high road. Sometimes even just watching grace get extended to somebody that like drives you crazy yep. can yep. be really like that I think is um is really humbling and also kind of sad. And I've, I've referenced this a couple years ago. A couple years ago. We, <laughs> how long have we been doing this show? <laughs> I mean, probably also then as well. Um, but there's an artist that I've, I've loved for a long time. His name is Sufjan Stevens. And he wrote this song, this haunting song. And Saul's actually references it in this blog because the song is about John Wayne Gacy, mm. who is not just a, a, a criminal. I mean, like notoriously despised and the song I, you should go listen to it because it's yeah. eerie and creepy and dark and by the end of it like you're just made to feel like ugh, this guy is the picture of evil and here's how he ends the song he says and in my best behavior i am really just like him look beneath the floorboards to the secrets i have hid mm. and like i remember the first time i heard that song i like it literally felt like i got punched in the stomach because you're made to like by the end of the song, feel that, yeah, this terrible person, this awful person, we all agree how how terrible he is. And he's like, yeah, that's, we're, we're all culpable. Mm-hmm. Like, we, like, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yep. I mean, there is a an ownership there, and I think, not to sound cliche or hallmark, but the more and more I think we realize the depths of how much we need grace, yeah. the harder and harder it is to keep it withheld from the people that need it. It's really good. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I think absolutely. that, but, but when we forget that, though, and like, you and I are, we're pastors. We're practically professional Christians. Yep. God it can be easy. It to us. Right, yeah. right. He's pumped to have us on his team. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, it's easy to forget just how much we've been forgiven yep. and how much we need grace. Yeah. A uh, couple month or two ago, we preached at our church just four weeks through uh, the book of Jonah. Yeah. And at the end of the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter four, it's the first time it really hit me preaching through that. 
was that that's essentially the message. Jonah is going, the Ninevites do not deserve you. Yeah, right. They don't deserve them. And God basically says to them, right, uh, you don't deserve me either. Mm. And it's this p- wonderful picture of just the depth of God's grace to the Ninevites, but also the arrogance of Jonah thinking that he should be the one who picks and chooses who gets grace. And he just assumed that he was on God's side. Right, right. And that's actually in that sermon, I used the Colorado story as mm. the open and the close. And I just put in front of people say, how do you feel about this guy? Yep. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from that sermon because people were just really wrestling with like, no, I don't, I'm not happy that guy found God's grace. Like, yeah. I'm not happy. But ending the sermon by basically going like, if you can't be happy for other people receiving God's grace, then you're not understanding your own need mm. of God's grace. And I was just hit between the eyes with that one. Cause you are right when you're a pastor or even if you're not a pastor, but you've been a Christian for a long time, uh-huh. uh, you start to think that, that, God's, you know, God's team is better off because you're there. Like right, God, right. man, God must you're be happy. I'm with exactly. <laughs> like I've earned my way onto the squad. Like God, I, I <laughs> right. work for you, and you become much more Pharisee than than the you know the person falling at the feet of Jesus, basically totally. with nothing. Right. And and it, it's very subtle. Like yep. it doesn't. It's not like one day you wake up and you're like, I don't need God's grace anymore. <laughs> I finished. And now I've, arrived, moved, I've right. now moved on to good works, right? Yeah. Like you don't go there, but mm. it's just really subtle. But then when you look at when these kind of things make you look at your life, you're like, huh, I do kind of live with that attitude. Yeah, I right. do kind of slip into that. And these kind of things can wake you up. I think another thing that's worth talking about is that sometimes to a fault, we only talk about grace in terms of salvation, mm. like grace as the entrance to heaven and not the thing that we extend and embody every single day. You know, like grace becomes this ethereal nebulous because the grace of Jesus Christ, I get to go to yep. the good places out of the bad place rather than like, Oh, because of the grace of Jesus, because of God's kingdom coming to earth that I treat people with dignity, yeah. that I care about the earth's resources, that I stand up for the exploited and the marginalized. Like, and not even just that I, tr- I am kind to the cashier. That's taking a little yeah. bit too long at the grocery store that I'm at right now. Like, it is unfortunate that I think we we only speak of grace in these like huge broad terms, yeah. which yeah. is easy to disconnect ourselves from, and we miss like the dare I say common areas <laughs> yeah. of the grace that not only is shown to us, but that we are then invited to show to everybody else yeah. to live on mission in that yeah. way to like to actually sit down and have a cup of coffee and put your phone away, or mm. to make or ask a question about something that someone shared with you two weeks ago. Like that's all grace too. Yeah. And I think uh, I don't know. I think we do the word disservice when we only talk about it in terms of salvation. I think that's great. I think there's a proportion there. It's a the proportion to which we understand God's grace in our life and our need for it uh, is it is proportional to the amount of grace that we show other people. And I think so. Therefore, if you're not a graceful person towards other people it probably should cause you to look at your view of God and how you view your standing before him and your need for his grace. That's really good, man. Well, coming up next, there's a a school in Texas that has uh, tripled their recess time Mm. and they see immediate positive results in their kids, which I think is an absolutely fascinating study. That's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm, a show about taking a deep dive and hopefully creating space for dialogue for stuff that sometimes doesn't have easy answers, which, you know, thinking about this, the last couple of weeks when we've been working with Food for the Poor, hmm. I feel like that conversation is one of those conversations that when I when I step back and look at like the global statistics, that is my conclusion is like there are no easy answers for this, right. but there are people 
that are are doing the best they can to make a difference. Like, you know what I mean? It's kind of a bull fan. Like I step back and say, gosh, at a global scale, or even just Haiti, like that's the country we're working with, yeah. who's been devastated by not only natural disasters, but like political disasters mm-hmm. and spiritual turmoil. Like it just seems like it seems like it just continues to get more and more yeah. painful there. And I, my knee jerk sometimes is to say like, wow, gosh, what, what could we possibly even do about that? Yeah. But then I like meet the people from food for the poor and they're like, okay, they're going after it. Like they're making, they're making a real difference. They're making a real dent. And I, this is why I love this part of the job because it's, it's so easy to talk about organizations that yeah. are doing things like feeding families. Yep. And sometimes the struggle for us can be, I can't solve all of the problems in right, Haiti. So right. therefore I can't do anything. And it's really, that's why I love when Paul Jacobs is here uh, from Food for the Poor. And you could just be like, hey, can you feed one family? Yeah. Can right. you bring water for uh, for one family? Yeah. Can you feed two families? Yep. And knowing that if enough people make that sort of commitment, you all of a sudden change communities. And then you change multiple communities and you totally, change a nation. Totally. Well, and, and the way that they do it, too, is brilliant because uh, for 80 bucks, it's food for a year but water for life. Yeah. And I didn't realize this, but like waterborne illnesses is the, the number one killer of people worldwide is impurities in water. Like yeah. something you and I, we don't even think about that. Yep. Like I leave my faucet just running while I brush my teeth, like clean drinkable water. So if you're listening and, and that in any way serves you, we want to encourage you. Maybe, maybe it's a one-time gift of $80. Maybe you have the capacity to give a thousand dollars, $2,000 like that, that legitimately impacts families and kids and eventually whole communities. And so you can go to 1160hope.com and uh, there's a, a banner there that says saving starving families. You click that link, click that image and the whole thing takes like three minutes. It's really, really quick. And uh, we're about halfway to our goal and we would love for you to be a part of that with us um, yeah. because I just, I just, I just think it's a really, really worthy cause. Um, all right. So one of the things that we talk a, a good deal about is particularly in Chicagoland sort of front and center has been like the massive failings of really well-known pastors. Um, but you may be encouraged or discouraged to know that doesn't just happen here. That, yeah. I mean, that's been happening all over the world since the beginning of the church, unfortunately, which is kind of a sad way to put it. But um, Ed Stetzer did a, an interview with, uh, with Darren Patrick who, uh, his, his story is a little different than some of the ones that we typically see. So I'd love for you to just fill us in a little bit about his past and then a little bit about uh, why this interview is so powerful. Yeah, I would really encourage you to go to ChristianityToday.com. Uh, it just came out uh, last week, I believe. And Ed Stetzer did a three-part uh, interview, one with Darren Patrick, then part two with Amy Patrick, his wife, and then part three with the pastor, Greg Surratt, who we actually talked to on the show about something different you might remember. Uh whom Darren is serving under currently. Right, right. Uh, and so particularly the one that Darren does, uh, he planted the Journey Church in St. Louis in 2012, and the church exploded. It grew to thousands of people in six locations. Darren also took on the role as a founding leader in the X-29 Church Planning Network. He's right. authored several books. Uh, so a kind of a mover and a shaker in the whole uh, young pastor world, uh, planting churches and uh, doing lots of great stuff, church exploding. Uh, And here's the ominous line in this article. It says this, as the journey church grew, Darren's platform grew faster than his character. Over time, Darren drifted from his relationship with God and forsook basic Christian character and leadership principles. And so you fast forward to March of 2016, the elders of the journey church confront Darren Patrick 
about an emotional affair and a variety of leadership failures. And this confrontation led the elders to fire him. Uh, but it, it that's where the story kind of turns. Hmm. It's not like they fired him and just kind of let him go. Hmm. But instead, the elders offered to place him in a restoration process. And much to Darren Patrick's um to his credit, he entered into this restoration process. 26 months, by the 26 way. 26 months. So it said it's been over three years since that failure has been, and he has completed that restoration process. And it would be a mistake, he writes, to think that Darren is now back with a great story to tell. There's still pain here. But basically, then this article, this interview, becomes what's going on in your life. And man, it is so telling, not just for pastors, but for all of us who have sin has found or who's, I should say, their sin has been found out, hmm. uh, who have been hiding things of... Stetzer basically asked Darren Patrick, how did this happen, right? How did this happen? Darren Patrick talks about not dealing with the pain of a, of his father dying and a, an abusive father, I believe it was. He talks about um, his pride being out of control. He talks about deceit and lying starting to enter into his life. Yep. And here's the one for pastors, man. He begins to talk about the danger of when he started seeing people as tools to get to his own dreams that's right, that's and his right. own uh, what he thought were selfishly his goals rather than seeing the pastor as the shepherd of the people and serving. And it is just this whole collective. And then you can see why in the end it all fell apart. Uh, but the crazy thing is nobody saw it coming. Yeah. Okay. When I've, I, did you listen to him preach at all? Were you a fan Couple of times? Okay. I, I got a little angry for my, uh, for my bent, but he's one of one's kind of was younger, angry, ultra reformed, guys yeah i i I, there's probably no debating he he was a he is a great communicator you know so that's definitely part of it and sometimes the the baggage that comes with being a good communicator is you can talk yourself out of things you know i think we're seeing that with a lot of churches especially like he he doesn't strike me as just some kind of power monger yep but uh like he he talks a little bit later in the article about just some of the entitlement that he had noticed in himself like expecting like things that he used to be really hungry for he sort of expected to be there because I've earned it. I've deserved it. It should be expected. He also, and I found this so interesting. He said, I'd become an absentee dad to my church. The truth is that the role of a senior pastor means that you serve as a father to a lot of people. Your friend can hurt you and it's painful. Your siblings offend you and it stings. But if your dad wounds you, it's devastating Mm. by being emotionally unavailable, being on the road, speaking at conferences and being in my study, writing books. I neglected our leaders in view of building my platform. I left them with the burden of a growing multi-site church instead of bearing that burden appropriately with them. I also learned that I was severely lacking in self-awareness, both with regards to my inner life and also with regards to how others experienced me. And Mm. I thought, that's that's why 26 months of restoration, he says 200 hours of professional counseling. That's why that hard work is so necessary because yes. he's like, and again, I don't know him personally, but this posture feels so humble. Like, yes. hey, here's all sorts of things that I was completely missing the mark on. And I don't think anyone, at least the, even quite frankly, the picture he painted of himself yeah. back when he was really big was not of a humble guy. It was right. like a man's man. I'm yes. rough. I'm going to tell it like it is. Yeah. And right. it is interesting. And it makes you believe that this restoration process has taken hold mm. because he's just softer. He's different. There's something. Mm. And he acknowledges it later in the article. He even, he even said, I realized how much deceit I operated in. Even small things like blowing off meetings, the untrue excuses. Like that's, that's oh, really yeah. 
self-value. And so this whole article, and I, I just think it's really helpful for not just pastors, but anybody out there to read this because he talks about the, just the painful journey of needing to understand not just the pain in his life, but his own wirings and mm. how he had hurt people and allowing people to come vent to him as to how they, he hurt them and to have to apologize to people. Like he really went through it. And I got to be honest, when I first heard that he was starting to serve at Seacoast Church, yeah. I was like, oh, here it is. Another one of these pastors who failed and now is kind of hmm. coming back up, you know, in the, right, like, this big right. church. And then I read this feeling a little guilty, like, oh, wow, this guy's doing the work that we always say all these guys need to do. Yeah, no and kidding. Good for him. Well, and it's so you had just touched on too him talking about blowing off meetings and making up small white lies as to why he couldn't be there. Uh, I think it's Richard Rohr who says how you do anything is how you do everything. Wow. Like this idea that it's only the massive exposures and massive cover ups, the, you know, the deleting email servers and the millions yeah. of missing dollars. Part of what I find so encouraging and hopeful even in his story is like, yeah, me lying about those meetings is the same issue. Yep. It's the same. How you do anything is how you do everything. Absolutely. You know? And I, so I, I've been actually ruminating on that sentiment in my own life. Like, Hey, how, how the impatience you show to your kid is the impatience you show to everybody. Ian. Yeah. Like okay. that, the way that you are in traffic is how you are in a leadership meeting. Mm. And I thought that's really convicting. But if anything, this is why I think Setzer is doing this report is not just to like, Hey, let's free pass, but like to talk about, you don't get here without the hard work that he hard went work. through, right? Yeah. And how important, how easy it is for us to, if no one's holding our feet to the flame, say, ah, so I lied about a meeting or two. What, what's the big deal? Like, we're seeing more and more. It is a big deal. Big deal. He also talks later in the article also about learning who his true friends were. Oh, yeah, no kidding. Who stuck through the process as opposed to people who just loved him because he was a big pastor with a big following. Once that was taken away, he says it was very interesting to see the people that went away. Yeah, no kidding. I, man, if anything, and I realize. Go read it. Yeah, yeah it's good. Read the whole thing. Yes. We'd love to know your thoughts, to be honest, but I, I'm just encouraged and challenged again. Uh, at how important it is to proactively seek godly accountability, even when it stings, even when it hurts, and make sure you're surrounding yourself with the right people. Absolutely. Well, you've been listening to The Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. I think that's my least favorite song on our rotating deck of songs. Would you put this somewhere in your... It's okay. Who, who is this? This is. Uh, I think it's Allison Chains. Uh, see, I'm always just. I'm always right genre, wrong people. I was going to go Soundgarden, but I think you're right. You think Soundgarden and Allison Chains are same genre? It's uh, same time period, same era. All same, right, I'll give you era, which is my high school era. Era. Oh, uh, yep. are you yep. correcting my pronunciation of era? No, no, I oh. did not. I just say era. That's just how I say it. <laughs> tomato, tomato, era, era, right? <laughs> I actually posted a question uh, a couple of days ago about classic rivalries, this versus that. And people were like, oh, you know, Coke versus Pepsi, cats versus dogs. And someone just wrote tomato versus tomato. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's really, that's really funny. Okay, well, once we've gotten through all of that, let me tell you some stuff about us. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show or 1160hope.com or whatever it is you get your podcasts. And I uh, found... This story, it's not really a story, it's more of an article, a blog, if you will. It's, <laughs> from, it's, a, it's uh, less narrative, more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a manifesto uh, <laughs> from Missio Alliance. You can learn more at missioalliance.org. And uh, here's, here's the grenade headline, and we're going to kind of dive into it. Uh, want some leadership advice? Lead like a woman. 
Okay, so it's written by uh, Seth, right? Seth Richardson, and uh, he kind of unpacks. He intros the way a good blogger often does, with, you know, some personal experience and a story. But then he dives into First Corinthians sixteen thirteen through fourteen. Be alert, stand firm in your faith, be courageous, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And then he goes on to say, some pastors and theologians prefer that the bit translated above as be courageous, instead be rendered, act like men. The appropriateness of the rendering act like men, though, is debatable. From a lexical angle, it's not wrong to draw attention to the connection between courage and the ideas of virtuous character connected particularly to masculinity and Greco-Roman culture. Yet whether the gender-specific sense is retained in our translation is actually not the point. And he goes on to talk about some of our proclivities to superimpose masculine traits Mm -hmm. and often marry them specifically with leadership. And we've kind of touched on this topic a little bit here and there, but I don't know that we've really gone full tilt at it like this. And I'm, I'm really curious what you think. Yeah. (laughs) I almost just thought of like, uh, so there, there's this conference that had been going on for the last couple of years called the act like men conference. Yes. And the person who started is now under suspicion of hiring someone to kill another guy. Oh, so oh boy. maybe, maybe there are some issues with it is my, is my point. So I appreciate I, you admitting that by the I way. I do think that there is, um, that here's where I will take it as a man that there are oftentimes superimposed what it looks to be to what looks to lead like a man that often feel very artificial. And for some of Hmm. us who aren't wired in that way, uh, you start to feel like you're leading incorrectly, right? Like you must be domineering. You must be bold. You must be authoritarian. Like these, there's weird things that, that culturally have become under masculine that I don't even think are biblical. And so therefore uh, it gives this skewed picture of what a leader is supposed to be. And then we elevate these people in churches and then, you know, kind of all hell breaks loose. And, and and so my first blush is we've all sat in these leadership conferences, right? Where you're like preached at, where you're like, you need to be like this. And I, my, my radar always goes up because I'm always like, why do all leaders need to be like one thing? Mm. And so that's my first thing here. I always struggle with like, oh, you're not man. And this is what a real man leads like. And you're like, I just. I don't feel like that's how Jesus led. Yeah, right, <laughs> so, right. So should I, you know, so why do I need to have this like hyper masculine, like, you know, I'm not going to care about people's feelings and I'm just going to drive. <laughs> and, and because I, was, I, don't, and I don't think that's the definition of masculinity that most men are working what, from. But it's what is often put out, at least in the church world. Maybe I don't know. I often feel this way. It's what's mm. often held up in these leadership conferences, mm. or at least from a certain bent. Right. And so, um, that always makes me uncomfortable. I also get uncomfortable when it's like <clears throat> all men do this, all women do this, and therefore all men lead and all women, you know, this is how women would lead. This is how men would lead. Like, it's just this kind of painting with a broad brush always makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So, no, I think he's right. I think there are things that are, if you could see me doing air quotes, quote, unquote, <laughs> uh, more feminine uh, traits that he holds out in here that are absolutely necessary when we lead. And there are the more masculine traits that are absolutely necessary. And I think yeah. to like raise up one at the expense of the other doesn't do us any good. Uh, let me, I just want to read some of it because it's, he just says it so much better than I can. And uh, stop me when it gets to be too much. If you want to weigh in, uh, he says in an earlier letter to the Thessalonians, Paul compares his leadership posture among them to the way a nursing mother cares for her children, tender, relational and nurturing. Then a few verses later, Paul compares his leadership posture to a father exhorting his children to, uh, to maturity, encouraging, comforting, and 
witnessing. Paul, mm. Paul has a vision from one new humanity being recreated in Christ, not discrete paths into essential, essentialized masculinity mm. or femininity. That's why Paul can at once use both feminine and masculine cultural imagery to describe how he is learning to embody leadership in the way of Jesus. Paul's goal is not ultimately to lead like a, quote, man, whatever that may have meant in his culture, but rather that he lead like the new human, Jesus Christ. And I think, so this is where it kind of gets really punchy for me. He says, the the problem is when the charge to act like men gets lifted out of Paul's Christological and cruciform vision for leadership and then refracted through a modern, Western, and even patriarchal framework to baptize a certain kind of culturally mm-hmm. masculine leadership. That's really good. I just think what really is at the heart of this for, for you and I as men is what is the picture of masculinity? What does it mean to be a man? Uh, and I do think that, that biblically that, that often our definition is not as much biblical as much as it is cultural. Yeah. That, and, and that becomes problematic. And, and the person to look for, Jesus was really firm at times, right? He, turned over tables and Jesus, he was brave and bold, but Jesus was also tender and Jesus also wept and Jesus was also caring. Like, but even, but honestly, even that comparison though, because the subtext is that the men are the ones that are brave and bold and the women are the, I'm saying culturally is what a lot of us have bought into. And so a real man shouldn't cry. A real man shouldn't this. I'm not at all saying that that's how it is. I'm saying that's how culturally and unfortunately, the church often buys into these cultural representations of yeah. them. And instead, the church needs to buy into the Jesus representation. Like, Jesus was a human being and a man. How did he live? What kind of what masculinity did he hmm. kind of show us? And I think uh, the, the stereotypical masculine things that our culture holds up, I don't think it matches how Jesus always lived. Yeah, okay, I'm just going to read a little more if I could. I would like it. Just so good. Says thus, Paul had something to learn from women about leading like Jesus. For Paul, leading in the way of Jesus looks like any virtue shaped by cruciform love, whether that characteristic is culturally more masculine or feminine. So if we say, quote, act like men and mean something in the realm of leaning into weakness, refusing coercion, giving of self so others can flourish, being relational, tender and gentle, then we're close to what Paul meant. Mm-hmm. And I think, oh, man, even just like reading that list of traits, I think, yeah, yeah, that's what all of us want in our leadership. So why why do you think that we settle for such like one dimensional flat yeah. definitions of what a leader is supposed to look like? It's just because it's what's held up so often, right? In not just in the church, but it's what's held up in movies. It's what's held up in whatever. And uh, I think you used a great phrase of one dimensional. Like I know this has been a struggle for me at times in learning my own leadership style. What's it look like to lead a church and all this. And you've got this idea of what, you know, to use his imagery, what it looks like to act or lead like a man. And there's been a disconnect for me when it's just that one dimensional. And that doesn't necessarily match my wiring. You begin to go, I must be an ineffective leader or I must be doing it wrong. When in reality, that's just not the biblical call at all. And so I do think you, your phrase there, I like that phrase you use there, the one dimensional leader hmm. is really helpful because I don't think, again, I just keep pointing people back to Jesus or how did he lead? And, and it's not the macho leader that we often hold up culturally. And right. because it's culturally, we often hold up in the church as well. Right. And also not a wimp, right? I think it's Absolutely. worth saying both ways. This Absolutely. dude is sometimes flipping tables and cracking whips. Absolutely. And so that's, that's kind of why I use one dimensional. He's not one. Yes. That exactly. Exactly. Because he is the ultimate mm-hmm. human. He's the archetype. He's the prototype. I think when we miss that and like, Oh, he looks like this or looks like that. I'll just sort of end with this. This will feel kind of devotional sort of oh, like be- benediction, but I'm going to go for it anyway. Uh, He says, if leadership in the way of Jesus is about more than getting things done or motivating others to get things done, 
if it is inherently relational and it's about communion all the way through, if communion requires the ability to calibrate vulnerability, to listen carefully and speak slowly, if this can only be accomplished by setting aside our will to overpower and desire to accumulate, to dominate and be in control, if the challenges ahead require more patient creativity and less knee-jerk reactivity, then we all need to act like women to lead more like Jesus. Mm. Which, I, man, that, that'll preach, yeah. and I'm sure rile some people up and i'm sure oh the phones are off the hooks right now no, they're not, they're not. but honestly and well you know this is going to be uh shared online we'd love to hear your thoughts your feedback mm-hmm. um at the common good radio store you can text us 68683 and in the message body just put cg and then your thoughts your reflections your suggestions because i think ultimately at the core we're all trying to work these things out yeah. i think we all want to grow and that ultimately is our goal absolutely well you've been listening to the common good on am 1160 hope for your life Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, and we like to end the show every time with a little bit of craziness, a little bit of interweb insanity. Before we do, though, I want to tell you about Food for the Poor again, because uh, we are close to reaching our goal. If you go to our website right now, 1160hope.com, click the Save Starving Families button. For just 80 bucks, you can give a kid food for a year, water for life, and if you can do a whole lot more than that, I would encourage you to do that. We're working specifically in Haiti, where the uh, humanitarian crisis is absolutely devastating, Mm -hmm. and uh, I cannot encourage you enough. If you need to research food for the poor, um, something like 95% of all the money raised goes directly to helping these families, so do your research if you need. Talk to your spouse, but hit pause on whatever you're doing. Walk away from doing the dishes. Pull over to the side of the road. Uh, we can make a huge, huge difference uh, for families that really need it. Yeah. Okay, hard right turn. So, Interweb and Saturday, Keith Conrad, uh, our executive producer who just walked by, uh, picks these stories. Nobody knows that. Nobody knows that. <laughs> just want them to know. I just saw him physically. He exists. Uh, picks these stories. They're faced out on the desk. We have not seen them. The computer's been loaded with sound effects that we have not heard, so we giggle uh, for real, not for not for play play. Yep. And uh, we're going to do that right now. Brian Fromm, kick us off. Uh, out of France, Eiffel Tower evacuated after man starts climbing it. Well, you're not going to shout the... Out of France! <laughs> the Eiffel Tower was evacuated and surrounding streets locked down on Monday after a man was spotted scaling the upper heights of the monument in the heart of the French capital. Oh, Specialist firefighters were on the scene. The man entered the tower normally and started to climb once he was on the second floor. The tower, one of the world's most recognizable landmarks, will be closed until further notice. The company added in a statement on its official Twitter handle. Bonjour, you cheese-eating surrender monkeys. <laughs> funny. We should start keeping tri- Do we owe Simpsons money or something? Like, is this? <laughs> we know what Keith watches it now. <laughs> yes. All right, this one's out of Africa. A pastor's arrested for selling tickets to heaven to members for $500. Sounds like a steal. Yeah. <laughs> A clergyman from Zimbabwe. I got two. I got two. <laughs> of course you do. I mean, we could just talk about the Trump prayer coins if you want. Is that uh, no, I'm sure too soon? Coming. Sorry. Pastor Tito Watts and his wife Amanda were arrested for selling tickets to heaven to church members. According to Egypt Today, the police disclosed that the pastor and his partner scammed several people into buying tickets for $500. It was added that the ticket is to get people into heaven without facing judgments. No, the police, it's a good deal. <laughs> it's a very good $500. My goodness. Yeah. I'll take five. <laughs> the police further disclosed that Pastor Watts' church members have called for the release of the man of God. Watts reportedly told those who sought salvation that the tickets were made from solid gold and each ticket reserved the buyer a place in heaven. What was that again? I'm a god. You're a god. I'm a god. I'm not the god. I don't think. <laughs> Name that movie. Oh, I know that movie. I know you that do. was Bill Murray. It was Bill Murray. So it's not Ghostbusters. It's not Ghostbusters. Then I don't know. 
I don't know either. Caddyshack? Maybe. <laughs> Groundhog Day? Groundhog Day. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. No, no, tell us. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that pastor should be named Willy Wonka. By yeah, the way. right. No kidding. New York. Okay. Man ticketed for a hand-drawn NYS inspection sticker. A uh, post on the Montgomery County Sheriff's official uh, Facebook page is offering a little advice to motorists. You can't make your own inspection stickers. In the post, with almost 7,000 shares, a photo of a false sticker made out of construction paper with lines for a barcode and a hole punch over January 2020. I get why this guy did it, but he made his own inspection sticker. That was really stupid. You need to look this up, people, because it looks like a three-year-old made it. I think that's an insult to three-year-old artists, actually. That's, that's more like one-year-old. All right, this one's out of Connecticut. Connecticut fugitive says he'll surrender if 15,000 people like his wanted poster Oh, on my Facebook. gosh. This is everything wrong with our culture. <laughs> this is it. Oh, I don't even want to read anymore, but I'm gonna. A Connecticut police department says a fugitive has agreed to surrender if enough people respond to an online wanted poster on social media. Torrington police say 29-year-old Jose Sims, who is believed to be somewhere in New York, has seven arrests. Okay. Seven arrest warrants and is being sought as a fugitive because he failed to show up uh, for, court, for a court appearance. Lieutenant Brent Johnson posted on the department's Facebook page on Wednesday that Sims has contacted him through Facebook and agreed to turn himself in if the social media containing his poster gets 15,000 likes. Am I being detained? <laughs> well, I'd just like to talk. Am I being detained? No. Am I free to go? Yeah. <laughs> Last one out of Poland. This one's going to freak you out. Oh, no. Polish sextuplet surprise parents and doctors that were expecting five. Holy cow. Poland's first sextuplets on record. Two boys and four girls were born in the southern city of Krakow on Monday to the surprise of the parents who expected five babies. Imagine this. We were prepared for an early early in the morning to help deliver five tiny citizens and out came six. He said the children, both born at 29 weeks, were in surprisingly good condition for sextuplets, but they showed some signs of immaturity of the respiratory system and central nervous system. They will stay in the hospital for a while. She said the babies would be named Philip, Timon, Zofia, Kaja, Nella, and Malwina. Boy, have I got a surprise for you! <laughs> I mean, props to Brian Fromm for... I went for it. For going, see, for actually, I went for it, baby! <laughs> and nailed it, I, I mean, might it's Memorial say. Day weekend. You gotta go all in right there. That's true. Well, I mean, you got big plans? You I got a lot going on? Neither do I. I. I'm gonna mow the lawn this weekend. Same here. I think that's the best kind of holiday weekend now. I don't know how lame we just got, but I think that is absolutely gold. This has been The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Have a great weekend. We will see you next week, everybody. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.